with Cherry Cookson, who has a uh, had a career spanning over 30 years in radio drama. Um, first of all, how did you get into radio drama? Was it something you always knew you wanted to do? No, a very roundabout way. Um, I'm very lucky, and when I look back on my career, I realise that everything has just sort of fallen into place, but it didn't seem so at the time. Um, like everybody, I wanted to be a great actress. I hadn't realised I was actually very bad. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I left school um, quite young because I was I went to a very very um, horrible boarding school but being quite bright I did my A-levels very quickly and okay. uh, actually left school at 17 with everything failed my Oxbridge entrance um, but anyway I thought right I'm going to go to drama school got turned down by drama school I went to study music because I was very good at music but it wasn't what I wanted to do really applied from music school the next year to go to drama school and they all remembered how bad I was. So I sort of studied music but then dropped out. Then I did a short drama course at a drama school where they don't turn you away. But I realised I was not good at acting and tried to join the BBC, ironically, who then headhunted me about five years later. But they in those days would only take on people with double firsts in English from Oxbridge and that sort of thing or you could go and be a secretary and I, I was wise enough then to realise that that was going to be a dead end. So I went to a fantastic agency called Graduate Girls who got me a job in independent television as a researcher because they were much more um, adventurous and if they liked you they gave you a chance to get on. So I worked for ABC and then Thames Television in their research department working on various programs. Then I got a fantastic break um, where I went to become a literary agent at Curtis Brown and I was assistant to someone in what was called the showbiz department and we dealt with all sorts of writers and amazing people like I was ringing up you know people like W.H. Auden and Lawrence Durrell and Daphne du Maurier and Samuel Beckett all these giants. Oh, and um, without being too indiscreet, somebody I worked with there wasn't around a lot. So I did a lot of his job. And in fact, he then later was asked to leave. And so I took over really very young, looking after all these amazing people. I mean, it was just the most fantastic break. I was only about 22, 23 when I went and did that. And so I worked for three years doing that and really having the most amazing time you know, including things like ringing up W.H. Auden and asking him to appear on the Michael Parkinson show, <laughs> which he did and then absolutely loathed it, which I knew he would. But, you know, uh, it was a very, very varied job. I became very interested in radio drama. I think I thought it was just much more satisfying as a medium and started wanting to work more on that. And the agency weren't so keen on that because... Um, it wasn't so lucrative and at roughly the same time the BBC I was having lunch with them and they someone was going off on leave and said they said would you be interested in coming here on contract as a, a script editor um, <clears throat> and it was just the right timing so I left the agency and went to the BBC where I worked for two years on two weekly contracts I worked with really interesting people um, in the script unit there people like John Madden who's now a very famous film director who directed the best exotic marigold hotel mm. and um, Peter Kosminski who's very successful mm. it was a fantastic job and after two years on two week contracts where you literally you know you hung around Friday night do you still want me on Monday you know um, I managed to get a job as a on the staff as a script editor. I think the great thing about radio there was that 
you weren't allowed to direct a play until you learnt how to edit a script. Mm. And as we all know, getting a script right before you direct it is absolutely vital. I didn't direct a play for probably four years. Uh, I, I wasn't allowed to direct them. I was only allowed to script edit them. And then I used to start by directing plays that weren't very good. You know, they always gave you something rubbish. Then slowly you started doing really good plays. And in fact, that was more frightening than doing a bad play. You can only improve a bad play and you can only ruin a good one. (laughs) So after a while, I then got a job as a staff, junior sort of staff director. And then about four years later, one of the senior directors was leaving. And having by then started to do really proper stuff there um, I managed to get her job as a staff director there and worked there for well many many years including some of the time actually helping to um, run the team of producers has it changed massively the BBC yes I mean the main change which is the one that I think we all find quite difficult is that in the in the what we call the old days and it's not being old-fashioned you know the producers enthusiasm for a project was absolutely pivotal. You were, it was all based on trust. I mean, obviously, there were people who had mates who wrote radio plays and probably got them on the air. I mean, probably still the same today. But uh, you could actually sell a play in a meeting verbally um, with your enthusiasm. Um, things got turned down, but everything was done on a, a rolling basis at a weekly meeting where directors, producer directors would turn up. These days, it's all become very like television I mean it's all pitched on paper it's very very difficult to to however enthusiastic or passionately you feel about a play if you can't verbalize that and the decision is going to be made on a something that is read on the page it's much more difficult to actually sell projects with regard to career paths you were an agent and then you sort of were asked to join the BBC that and then you ended up directing do you know what I mean yeah so there's almost sort of three little career shifts there yeah is that still does thing, do things like that still happen? Do thing is it possible to have that progression? I think it is still possible. I mean, it's very difficult to learn how to be a director. Mm. Uh, it really is, and that's why, as I say, I think the first ground rules uh, you know you need is is to get this a good script and to make sure you know how to script edit because then you know the play will sort of play itself. I think you've got to know a lot about casting and things like that. Radio, you can't, if you miscast something on the radio, you, you completely had it. I was very nervous about becoming director because I'm actually naturally quite introverted. And um, the thought of standing up and telling people who I'd admired for years what to do <laughs> was just terrifying. And I still get scared. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I've been doing it, for, you know, and yeah, as everybody says, the day you don't get scared, you give up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you were talking earlier about your background a bit in music. Um, Jeremy Howe recently said to me that no one mixes music and drama quite like you do. Why do you have such a skill at mixing the two, do you think? I think for myself, I've always wanted to make programmes that are very, it sounds frightfully enough, very beautiful. I think radio is a fantastic medium. I think people with really wonderful voices, not beautiful necessarily, but I think there are some people who've got very dull voices and so you tend to want to cast people who've got really quite musical voices sometimes. Uh, Music, to me, I've always thought that things can be enhanced and really made quite magical. Just moments in plays can be made quite wonderful by the right music. And to me, it's always been an exciting challenge Mm -hmm. to find the right bit of music for a play. And 
you know, I would often say if I, once I've found the music, I know how to do the play. I used to work with an editor in the days when we worked with faders and things, and she said, oh, you, you've got to do all your own fades because I knew exactly where, the, and I mean literally to the nth second, where the speech should start. Directing is almost like composition, isn't it? Yeah, well, very much so, very much so. I mean, I, I do sort of think of it in quite a kind of musical kind of way. People always used to say, um, I knew five minutes in that it was one of your plays because um, of the music. And I usually like to take that as a compliment. I mean, I'm yeah. sure writers will think I've drowned some of their plays in music, but uh, I'm very, very strict about music editing and I annoy a lot of people when I'm doing my fine, fine editing because they'll fiddle, you know, people like, you know, now that it's all digital, mm -hmm. people say, or people will say, oh, I'll just cut a few bars out and then it'll fit well at the end. Well, sometimes that can work. But I can hear, you know, I knew, know most of the music backwards and I can hear it, you know. And with that in mind, Cherry, what's always surprised me about radio drama is how fast it's made. Do you ever feel, com comparatively with other art forms, you know, where film edits can take, you know, months, do you know what I mean? You know, whereas radio it's expected for a much higher turnaround, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I sometimes feel like that's a bit unfair. Is that something you empathise with or do you think... Yes, I mean, there's something quite exciting about working very, very fast. It can be exciting, but there's an awful lot of compromise, I think. And I think the thing I most hate is having to record so quickly after a read-through. I mean, I really... Uh, sometimes in the old days when we had, say, four days to do a 90-minute play, in the days when there were 90-minute plays, um, you would rehearse for three days and you wouldn't record until the final day. And wow. that that was wonderful, actually. And we, we also, I did plays in runs where I do a whole 90-minute play as a one continuous take with all the sound effects and the music. And I love working like that. And the thing I dislike most about the new way of working is that I'm not allowed to put the music on at the time of recording because I always used to do that. And I, the actors were aware of that. And it's pretty nerve-wracking. But I often felt you've got to better performance. For example, I did a play last year for Radio 4 and um, I wanted to put the music on at the time and the actor, I think, wanted to put the music on at the time but we were sort of told it would be easier to put it on later. Well, it wasn't. And there is almost, as someone, I say this as someone who's never ever worked with anything but digital, but there almost is the curse of the digital editor to assume that you can actually do something after the event when actually you can't, because you can't adjust the amount of time an actor takes to say the lines. I guess what I'm asking is, you know, uh, is, is this something that's happening more and more at the BBC? Is, is digital sort of almost in a way supplanting, you know, the sort of skills that, that maybe 20, 30 years ago were commonplace? I think there is a huge false economy in terms of saving money because I think um, by not putting everything on at the time and saying we can do all that later, I think you often end up spending more money than you would have done in the studio um, in editing time because editing time isn't free. I think it should be more flexible depending on the project and the director and everything else. During the time you were at the BBC, Cherry, what, what sort of changes did you see? Well, I was there for, I think it was about 34 years, something amazing like that. Um, huge changes. I mean, absolutely huge changes. I mean, a very simple thing. In the old days, we had studios um, where we had, if you wanted echo on something, we, there was an echo chamber, mm -hmm. which was in the basement at Broadcasting House. And you, went, you had to say to the person, I want echo in this scene, and they'd fade up 
this echo chamber. The fam- famous story once that they faded it up when there was a couple <laughs> having sex <laughs> in the echo chamber. I don't know if that was true. Everybody in those days had a lot more fun and they all dra- drank a lot. I mean, it was quite interesting. But I mean, that you know, when I first joined there and there were these kind of iconic people um, still there, um, it was an amazing place to work, but people were quite often the worst for wear quite a lot of the time. We all smoked like anything, you know, people drank at lunchtime, people enjoyed it all. Uh, there was a huge sense of enjoyment. I think there's a slight climate of fear at the moment. And part of me having now had to leave and working independently, um, part of me in a way thinks I'm relieved I'm not dealing with some of the the pressures. I mean, rather like the National Health Service, the amount of bureaucracy. Um, I did. A, I directed a play for the department just after I'd left, and I had to come in and do a four-hour online health and safety module <laughs> on a computer, which couldn't be done at home. Um, well, that just says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> There's a lot of false economy, I think, these days. To be honest, I think if if they trusted, say, the director now, and the director said, right, I need you know, an extra half day in the studio and it'll cost less in the long run or whatever. Um, there's far too many people interfering with how you are, how you work, really. A lot of what we've just been talking about with regards to the culture um, surrounding radio drama and the Beeb and all that sort of stuff, um, and thinking back to what I know of, of, of the BBC before I was born, you know, stuff like the Radiophonic Workshop and the kind of the stuff they were doing with sound effects and things like that, and looking at what I know of it now, would you say that when we're thinking about the future, that actually a degree of experimentation has been lost. Yes, I mean, I worked a lot with the Radiophonic Workshop and uh, I work a great deal with one of the best people in it, Elizabeth Parker, who also wrote a lot of music for the plays that I did. And uh, it was a very misogynistic world, I have to say. Uh, and as a woman director, I had a lot of problems with some of the people there. But there was something wonderful about them and um, they were... A, before certain changes in the BBC, they were a free resource. If you were doing a play um, that needed radiophonic sounds, you rang them up, you went and worked with them, they worked with you. It was a part, all part of the BBC. Then it became something that um, uh, you, you had to pay for. Then it became sort of phased out. Then it didn't exist anymore. It's very, very sad because it was a very exciting way of working. Mm. It's a whole world lost. It was very innovative. Now it's all a bit clinical. Taking that into account, obviously, uh, you know, with the new technology that they have now, the internet, downloading that kind of stuff, what do you think the future... Do you think there is a future for radio drama? And what do you think the future is? Uh, Well, I think there's a huge future for radio drama. I, I certainly think... I'd like to think there's a huge pressure at the moment to get a younger audience. I don't think it's... Well, obviously, with what Wireless Theatre Company is doing, is fantastically good at doing that. It's quite difficult for the BBC to actually manage to do that. And I don't think some of the programmes they make to try and get a younger audience sort of quite kind of work. But, uh, yeah, I think it's just a question of... um, keeping people um, aware of radio drama and and huge you know publicity and everything I wish there were more programs on television about radio drama I think it's a fantastic medium it's hugely underrated Um, and I think you know a lot more could be done to make programs about about radio because I think people are genuinely fascinated 
about how it works and certainly teaching young new actors um, acting they haven't got a clue about how do you do a screen kiss uh, you know how do you do a kiss on the radio um, you know how do you do this that the other you know they're absolutely fascinated by it how do you do a kiss on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> well, some actors like to do the real thing if they fancy. <laughs> you leave it up to the act. I've always left it up to the actors, and I've seen everything from quite a lot, I can tell you. <laughs> I think it's all in the breathing. Mm. Mm. Heavy mm. breathing and, and sort of nostling into the... Um, Yes, a lot of all that. You actually have to almost have a, an orgasm. It <laughs> just sound like you're having a kiss. And what's next for you, Joe? Oh, um, well, I hope Manchester United are going to beat Blackburn. <laughs> oh. uh, uh, looking at kick-off time. Um, I've just directed a play for Radio 3, which goes out um, the beginning, just before Wimbledon starts. It's a very anarchic um, comedy um, starring Alex Jennings and Celia Imrie and Michael Maloney and lots of other wonderful people which we did on location on a real tennis court and I'm doing a play later this year about Rachmaninoff for Radio 4. Next year I'm doing another big play for Radio 3 about Wagner and Verdi. Lovely. And hopefully some more work for the uh, Wallis Theatre Company. Of course! Well, we hope course. so, we very oh, much have. Jerry, thank you very much. Thank you. Not at all, thank you. Brilliant.